0: Today, Safeguarding Our Data Assets with Brian Gallagher. It's back in uh, November of 2011. I guess it was November 2011. And I was working at the time for the ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And they had assigned me to work with the FBI on this hot new project around social media monitoring. And this was kind of cutting edge at the time. No one had ever done stuff like this uh, by then. And so we create these capabilities, my team and I, that are listening into effectively the social media multiverse. We have this cacophony of conversations that are occurring all across cyberspace and all these different social media platforms, comments on YouTube, blogs, et cetera. And we're culling through all this, not looking for keywords, but looking conceptually for things that might be concerning and of interest. And as I say, we're working with the FBI on this project, and this is sort of a a beta test to see if we can develop these capabilities. And so I have a great team working for me at the time, and they put together the entire capability, and it's a Friday afternoon, and I'm going to take some time off, which at the time, I'm working 16-hour days, six, seven days a week, no kidding. I never get any time off, but I decide, all right. In fact, I'm going to take off, uh, and I did a little work Saturday. But on Sunday, I decided I'm taking the entire day off. And so I call up a couple of friends of mine from the Beltway, and we arrange for a brunch in Fairfax, Virginia. And so I get there, and I get to the restaurant. And as I'm going in, I have a phone that's dedicated to this system that we built, and it explodes. It starts buzzing and ringing, and the klaxons are going off. And candidly, I'm pissed. And so on my other phone, I call my lieutenant, dude, seriously, I asked for one morning off. You got to keep testing the system all through the weekend. You got to test it now. And he tells me, we're not in the office. None of us are. We decided to turn the system on before we left for the weekend. This is live. Well, that's interesting. And so I look at the thing, and it turns out it's saying there's a threat to POTUS, to the president of the United States. And he, at the time, he's at the APEC conference in Hawaii. And so I'm looking at this screen, and I call up my FBI liaison on the other line, and I tell him, look, this is crazy, but I think we have a credible threat against POTUS. He says, okay, hang on, and he transfers the call, and he dials in Secret Service. And so Secret Service gets on the line, tell him again what's going on. My liaison, fortunately, is on the line, says, yep, this guy's legit. And so they said, all right, we're going to patch you through to the field office. In Hawaii, into the detail that's working guarding the president, and they do. And so, guy picks up the phone in Hawaii and tell him what's going on. He says, "All right, hang on the phone." And he doesn't put me on hold. He puts the phone down on a desk so I can hear everything going on in the background. And they're ordering people to go out and do all these sort of things. We pinpoint the guy's address, and so they go and they dispatch a, a team. And within eight minutes of the time I called. This guy gets back on the phone from Hawaii and says, we've neutralized the threat. And now I'm former Special Forces. So when I hear neutralize the threat, I'm kind of, you know, seriously. No, 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 no. We have him in custody. We've arrested the guy. Uh, And he's legit. He was buck naked, armed to the teeth, weapons all over the place. He was serious. He was going to go out and try to kill the president. That's crazy. And so hang up the phone and, you know, a Jack Bauer moment, but day is done. Well, the guy I talked to in Hawaii, I hear from again about eight years later. And that's who we're going to be talking to today. My very special guest, uh, a a person who has since become one of my best friends that I've ever had in my very long life. Uh, This is Brian Gallagher. and Brian is going to join us for the conversation. Hey, Brian, how are you?
1: Hey, JT. Great. Thanks for having me today.
0: No worries, no worries. Hey, um, before we start out, I, I mentioned that you worked with uh, the Secret Service, but I didn't give a lot of the detail. What if you'd mind sharing, and I know this story because we, we've told this, these stories to one another and our friends over Scotch more times than I can count over the last couple of years. But Brian, you weren't born in the Secret Service, right? Uh, you, you, didn't, you didn't do that when you were in, as a toddler or in your teens. Why don't you tell me just a little bit of the backstory? Ah, uh, share with our listeners. Wh- where do you come from? How you come to this?
1: Oh, wow. Um, you know where to where to start. Um, and you know, in order for me to tell this story, I really need to start back when I was about five years old. And I, I promise you and I promise the the listeners that I'm not gonna go year by year all the way till today. <laughs> but when I was a child, um, and when I was uh, around five, uh, it was a, a critical moment in my life. Um, You see, my father was an entrepreneur and we were living um, in the outskirts of Boston in Massachusetts. And my father had a a business that uh, him and a partner had started doing extremely well, extremely successful. Um, However, due to a series of circumstances, the business went bankrupt. And unfortunately... Um, our home was tied to a business loan. Um, and so when the loan got called, uh, our home got called as well. And literally overnight, we, we found ourselves homeless. And so I'm younger. I'm the youngest of, of three siblings. Um, and my parents really had no options uh, other than uh, moving in with family. And it happened to be that my mom had an uncle. So my, my great uncle that lived in the Washington DC beltway area and had two children that just went away to, to college. And so there were some extra bedrooms and an open basement and invited us to to move to Maryland. And so, you know, literally overnight uh, we packed into the old station wagon and, you know, grabbed what we could and uh, found uh, myself, you know, relocating to a whole new home with a whole new people, you know, relatives that I never met. Uh, my mother had been a stay at home mom and you know, found herself all of a sudden having to uh, go to work, and it was just this time in my life that completely got turned upside down. Wow! Um, I lost all sense of security that I had uh, just as a as a person. So, kind of to start with that, because you know, you have to sort of understand that that background and that mindset to know how I I've gotten to where I am today.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the most important question I have to ask you. Red Sox or Nats? You're not one of those Red Sox guys, are you?
1: Oh, man. If uh, if this was a, a video <laughs> podcast, you'd see me wearing my Boston shirt right
0: now. So. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm from New York, so, you know, we're not supposed to get along. But um, it's fascinating to me because that really sets the trajectory, I think, for the rest of your life. Because if I'm not mistaken, uh, as I recall, your first real job was was as a paramedic, was rescuing people. But even before that, from what you shared with me in the past, this entrepreneurial spirit, this idea of uh, not just entrepreneurial to make money and to be wealthy, but this sense of of taking charge, of ownership for your own life and for protecting your family, right? And you you had mentioned to me in a previous conversation that, you know, you did the whole paper route thing in the lemonade stand and and you hustled all through high school as sort of a backstop right so your family would never be in those circumstances again and forgive me for putting on my shrink hat but i kind of detect a thread of how that led you into being a paramedic and and i know you did that work for quite some time but that work eventually takes you into the secret service so tell me about that
1: yeah so i mean you're you're right on you know several things i always had this entrepreneurial mindset uh, in fact, the, the first company I ever started was called Safeco, and I think I was eight or nine years old. <laughs> you know, we'd go up to the gas station. That's the word I'm looking for, and I'd buy pepper spray and uh, walk around and, and upsell it to the neighbors, you know, in the in the neighborhood for an extra couple bucks.
0: So you were scalping pepper spray as your first. It was it
1: was all about supply chain. My my supply chain started wherever I could walk to, and I could walk up to the local. Uh, um, the local hardware store and or, or gas station and, and, you know, get whatever I can get. So
0: Yeah, it's really cool, though, how those things come together, right? It's this idea of entrepreneurialism, but this, I always think of it as, you know, there are the sheep and wolves, and then there are the sheepdogs. And so you have this sheepdog quality about you where you want to not only protect the various people in your life, your family, but you also want to profit to some extent because you realize money is security. Uh, is that a, a fair summation?
1: No, absolutely. And, and, and there is there is a direct correlation. So, you know, uh, although my father was an entrepreneur, um, my father was also a, a civil servant and he was in the Air Force and, you know, always focused on wanting to to help others and, and serve others. So that's I think part of that is something that I, I grew up with inherently. Um, but where the, the pieces come together is, um, I always just felt like whatever I did, I needed to create a sense of of safety for myself and ultimately for my family. And a lot of that drew to financial safety uh, because I I didn't want uh, what I experienced as a child to, you know, ever happen uh, later on in life, you know, or heaven forbid to to my children that, you know, I would have one day. Um, So, you know, I was really drawn towards this. This helping this public safety, this, you know, how do I help others in need? Because I knew what it felt like uh, to be in need. So you mentioned, um, you know, one of my first jobs was uh, with the fire department, uh, EMT, and then paramedic and, and firefighter. Um, at the same time, I was uh, interning with the local police department. And ironically, uh, at the time, you know, you had to be 21 to be a police officer to carry a gun. But you could join the fire department at 18, <laughs> and uh, so that's the the direction I went in. I said, "Well, I can I can do something now uh, versus having to wait another three years," and it got me uh, started in my career.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can also see this dichotomy where, on the one hand, you feel compelled to save and to rescue, and so you know, it's whether it's EMT, paramedic, firefighter, police officer, this compulsion to protect everyone. But you know, I was a, a, a paramedic and I was a cop, and I know you didn't make anything, right? The pay scale was, especially back in the day, you could probably make more being, well, you definitely could make more being a waiter. Uh, You you could probably make more being the night shift manager at the local McDonald's. And so, you know, clearly you weren't doing that for the money. And then, of course, you make the shift to, uh, and remind me again, you were one of those guys who wore the black suits and the mirrored sunglasses, but what was your, specifically was your remit when you were with Secret Service, what did you do?
1: Yeah, so I, I was working for the technical security division. And I'll take a sort of a couple steps back and explain, you know, what that is and, and sort of how the pieces came together. Um, but, you know, I had mentioned uh, around the time of you know graduating high school and into college, you know, 9-11 had hit. Um, and so it happened to be that the the Secret Service was looking for people that had a background in Uh, fire rescue services, you know, EMTs. And they had a specialty team that was called the Hammer team, uh, stood for, or stands for Hazardous Agent Mitigation Medical Emergency Response. And, you know, you you see these guys in the motorcade, but if you don't know what you're looking for, you know, you never know who they were. And ultimately, uh, they're with the president everywhere, focused in on um, things like uh, medical emergencies and, you know, heavy rescue and, you know, is there a fire where the president's at? Uh, you know, one of the things I like to tell people is just think about the president's limousine, you know, the details of how thick the doors are, are classified. But if it were to get in a car accident, the local fire department uh, isn't really going to know what to do and, and how to help out. So we had to have uh, trained people uh, with him in uh, or her at all points in time to be able to, to protect against that. So I had a friend who had told me, uh, hey, I was, I was uh, at the time I'm going to work with the Maryland State Police. And he said the, the Secret Service is looking for people with your skill set. And I had applied and initially, originally went in into their uniformed division as a uniformed secret service officer, uh, because that was the team for Hammer at the time. But once I got in, I, I learned about the technical security division, and they were the ones that were behind this group. And, you know, they did anything from, uh, you know, the, the fire and rescue to, you know, dealing with electronics and countermeasures and, you know, anything you know, think of Q from 007, you know, all of that <laughs> tech stuff is exactly uh, what this group did. And so,
0: you know, that makes a lot of sense to me because I know from there, uh, because you weren't busy enough, you didn't have enough of a remit taking care of, you know, bombs and poison gases and explosions and, and heaven forbid, car crashes and medical issues. You decided to go in your evenings because you had so much spare time and you got a master's in? Correct me if I'm wrong. Computer forensics and cybersecurity.
1: Yeah, my master's degree is in uh, computer forensics and cybersecurity, and um, and that was very intentional. So my my undergraduate degree is in homeland security uh, with a concentration of weapons of mass destruction. Yeah, I said that correctly. Weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> and so what I was doing at the time was working with these uh, really technical countermeasure systems for looking for things like a a nuclear weapon or a biological threat. But what I found is all of these countermeasure devices that are ultimately, you know, used for physical threats, you know, like an explosive as an example, were getting plugged into a network. And once you plug that into the network, it was crossing into a completely different world with a completely different set of of problems and concerns that can be exploited uh, and infiltrated. And so I had a a wise mentor that uh, guided me towards the the cybersecurity route. And it was probably one of the best decisions uh, other than calling you back that I ever made.
0: (laughs) And, you know, well, I got to tell for everyone who's listening, I'm just impressed that, uh, Brian, I know the first president you protected was George W. Bush. And yet you can still pronounce nuclear. So I I, I think our audience should all be pretty impressed. Uh, Okay, (laughs) Sorry, had to go there. Had to go there. But I, I, I know you were doing that for, I think you spent about a decade, and then you you get that compulsion to go back in and become an entrepreneur again. And I know from the background, and I, forgive me, I'll, I'll shorthand it, I know you travel around the world, you set up protective capabilities all over the, the planet, uh, You you had previously worked with several of the embassies, and now you're working with different companies and countries, around the world to help protect them. And so, so sort of the leap motif, the, the common thread I see through your life is this notion of protection, right? Protecting people, property, and profits. And so now over the last few years, you've also added the protection of data to your remit, right? So it's it's gone beyond people, property, and profits to where now it's also data assets. Why is that? And look, I know you got that master's in uh, computer forensics and cybersecurity, but why shift from protecting actual tangible property, real human beings, flesh and blood? What's with the zeros and ones, bud?
1: Sure, sure, No, great question. So, 2012, 2013, uh, when I was in the in the service still, uh, sequestration happened um, underneath uh, the second president, uh, President Obama. You know, you may remember him. Easy. And so since the you know, economy was falling and the government was having to, to cut budget um, uh, left and right, I walked into the office one day with a letter on my desk uh, basically saying that my salary was going to get cut by 25%. Mm-hmm. The government had the right to do that. And you know, as a young guy, firstly married, you know, looking to have kids on um, paycheck to paycheck, dollar to dollar, and you know, 25% wasn't something that, that I could stomach. So I had a a mentor uh, that I had been meeting with uh, over the two years prior. And ironically, um, he just had an exit activity at the company he was with, went to a new startup that was focusing on some new technology for finding nuclear weapons of commerce. So he offered for me to leave the government and come over. And um, yeah, it was zeros and ones. It was, you know, from a a Friday to a Monday, I, I doubled my salary. But what the issue was, was I always thought that the government was a secure place from a financial perspective. And, you know, that moment that I walked into my office and looked at that piece of paper, I realized that that financial security that I had wasn't there. And so, you know, I couldn't just rely on that as a crutch. And, and I had to step out into the world to continue to, to do better for myself and my family.
0: Yeah, you know, really interesting. I mean, again, I don't want to get too shrinky about this but here you've committed your life to protecting others and you're finding that sort of the rug is being pulled out from under you. And so that sort of leads you back down this path, which isn't unwelcome. And you start uh, now protecting the assets of organizations so that they don't end up and their employees don't end up in the same circumstance you are. And I, I see that same sort of a move. But as I was saying though, data is different, right? Data isn't like protecting a building. It isn't like protecting the president. Why? Why do you think we it's worth investing time? Uh, and I'll ask almost rhetorically because, you know, I, I think I know the answer. But why invest yourself in taking these amazing skills, this mindset you have, this energy you have, and using it to protect a bunch of zeros and ones?
1: Well, I think because in, in today's time, every company is now a data company. Every person uh, is the is the owner and creator of, of data. If you think about that, you know whether it's it's registering information on your smartphone to you know a small mom and pop shop, you know just just having you know information on their computer. So what I saw is is everything in the future and, and currently is being driven by data, right? And so if data can be stolen, that's problematic. If data can be changed in a malicious way, uh, that's problematic and has real life effects, right? Um, and if you think about some of the different markets and, and some of the different areas and how data is, is used, uh, well, if that information was stolen or removed or altered, it has real physical effects that are, are tied to that. And I realized, uh, particularly, uh, I was doing a lot with artificial intelligence uh, in machine learning, uh, in the in the company that I was working with when I left the government, and with this foresight of of everything being data driven, I realized that that companies just needed to be able to get a grasp on how to not only use that data in the appropriate manner, but to be able to protect it at the same time. Um, you know, otherwise, it, it was going to ultimately be useless if you couldn't believe uh, in the information and, and inputs that were provided.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I well, I vehemently agree with you, but at the same time, I'm struck by the fact that we're a minority, right? People who think this way. Do you think it's about time that I don't know, the CXOs, the executives, even rank and file employees start to realize that they have a responsibility as data fiduciaries? Isn't it about time we start thinking about software and data in a different way, as as real assets? I, I think because it's so ephemeral. You know, you look, I, I like to remind my friends, you would never leave uh, the door unlocked and the register open full of cash when you leave at night. And yet, you don't bring that same perspicuity, that same attention, that same concern, apparently, to your data assets. Uh, is that your experience as well?
1: Yeah, I, I completely agree with what you're saying. and But I, I think things are, are slowly changing. And what you tend to see uh, in scenarios like this is a change ends up being reactive, right? And I even go back to 9-11 and think about the, the single moment that uh, the towers came down and the Pentagon was hit. What was it like the next week when you went to an airport and got on an airplane? Uh, all of a sudden, things that people didn't want to do were common practice related to enhanced security. And I think we're seeing the same thing in the cyber. I think when uh, events such as you know the Solar Winds attack had happened in, in late 2020, Government is being forced to take action. I think when organizations like the European Union put forth legislation like GDPR or California pushes forth the California uh, Privacy Act that's focusing on data and responsibility of information, people are now having to notice and having to realize that there's a consequence as a data fiduciary in their organization if they don't do something.
0: I mean, let me argue with you. Let me push back on you a little bit. When I'm looking at the numbers, I see cybercrime is on the rise. In fact, it's exploding. The last figures I saw project cybercrime will cost the global economy around $6 trillion this year alone. That would make it, if you measure it as GDP, the world's third largest economy. When I think of 9-11, when I think of 2000 with the Y2K thing, I think of a lot of these things and I say, yeah, ephemerally, people start to stand up and take notice. They care right after the event. On September 11th, wow. And I always tell people, you know, remember what it was like September 12th when the not only we came together in the United States, but around the world. People came together in locked arms. But then people get complacent. You know, when I look at the pandemic, uh, when it first came to your town, everybody was wearing masks all the time. We couldn't wait for a vaccine. Yeah, there was a subset of the population that, that didn't want to play nice. But for most of us, that imminent threat, and, and I go back to the time when you or I were paramedics. While the building's on fire, everybody is cognizant of fire, right? And everybody's thinking about that. But a, a week, a month, a year goes by, eh. And so I'm wondering, do you think companies and countries really are taking this sufficiently seriously?
1: So I'm going to turn the table in a second and say, you know, you're the shrink, so please correct me if I'm <laughs> wrong with what I'm about to say. Um, But I think just the the way people naturally are, they're they're going to shift back to the norm, right? People don't like to be disturbed or told they have to do extra things or inconvenient things. Now, I think that's an interesting dynamic because I think what that then does is it puts responsibility back on the company's hands or on organization's hands to use technology appropriately. And just sort of an easy example, you, know, you talked about, hey, you always lock the, uh, the doors to your house. Well, I mean, I have smart locks on my home now, and I can have them set to where if it's nine o'clock and that door's not locked, you automatically lock. And, and I think we need to take the same approach when it comes to cyber and data. And I think industry is. I think industry is looking at that. Uh, but rather than assuming that you know, every person is going to use the appropriate you know, password protection policies... Uh, we have to put things in place to you know, enforce that or make it happen behind the scenes so it's not being perceived as an inefficiency to the user.
0: You know, you, you make a, a great point. I'm uncharacteristically going to concede the point, in fact. I think uh, that is true. I think more and more companies, is that what you're seeing? Do you see that there's an end to this you know, cyber pandemic that we're facing now? Do you think that companies are going to start standing up. Do you think it's going to be as bad as it is now into the future?
1: You know, unfortunately I do. And you stated that statistic about uh, $6 trillion uh, in, in cybercrime, you know, right now, uh, I think a a recent stat that I've seen uh, shows by 2028 or 2030, that's going to double, you know, so just think about that aspect of it. You know, unfortunately I think we would all agree nobody's going to start using less technology. You know, and you think about Moore's law and how technology uh, tends to get better. And I mean, just look at our history. Everything that we do is more technologically uh, focused uh, right now. Um, I have two two daughters; they're younger, and my wife and I often comment half seriously, half joking. But by the time they're getting their driver's license you know, we're pretty certain that that um, self-driving cars are, are going to be an everyday thing. Yeah, and, and so, you know, how does that change the aspects of things? You know, am I concerned with my child's driving skills or am I concerned with the amount of cybersecurity a car has? And, and you're going to see that just continue, I think, to, to multiply and, and grow exponentially over time. And the threat's going to be there with it.
0: That's going to keep me up at night thinking about that. I candidly, hadn't given that much thought as we think about how technology, I don't know, I think there's this continuum between utopian and dystopian and people tend to stay on one side of it, either the, you know, rise of the robots and they're going to eat all of us or uh, everything is going to be great and grand and glorious, but you bring up a great point here. You know, self-driving cars inherently will be safer on the one hand, but on the other hand, they're hackable, right? And so do malign actors do these, malicious lunatics break into those systems. And now to know that your you know, your daughter's in the car, which on a related note, I took a flight to Australia a couple of years ago. I've been to Australia a number of times. Anyone listening from Oz love Australia. But uh, I got speaking to the pilot before the flight, really nice guy. And I asked him, you know, do you use the, the autopilot and do you use the computer systems to help you in flight? And he said to me, how long do you think I'm actually in control of that aircraft? I I don't know. It's a 23 hour flight. I'm assuming, you know, 22 hours said, Nope, not even an hour. (laughs) I have my hand on the yoke at takeoff and landing. And that's about it. The rest of the time, it's computers that are flying the thing scared the crap out of me. (laughs) I love technology. I love these systems, right? I build these systems, but the idea that, that we're, Relinquishing control to these systems is potentially scary, especially, you know, do you see any evidence, uh, other than we talked about that big number, do you see any evidence that cybercrime actually is on the rise?
1: I mean, yeah, I do. And and I think, um, you know, just statistically, it's up 600% over COVID.
0: Wow. And
1: think about what's happened, you know, with COVID. You've had all these people who were working, uh, you know, in their their places of employment in a building that has an infrastructure of of uh, IT and, and security. You know, thought process has gone into you know how to protect those networks within that environment. And now all of a sudden, all these people are at home. And you know, look, I'm a CEO of a cybersecurity company, and it's uh, yeah, probably pretty easy to, to hack into my home network. <laughs> And I think that's the truth for the vast majority of people. And the the bad guys know that, right? And so they're looking for for easy targets and they're looking for, well, if I can hack into my neighbor who works for Lockheed Martin and all of a sudden then get access to, to something on the new F thirty-five program and and do that, you know, from the Wi-Fi signal that I can pick up from, you know, my apartment, great. And and so it's it's created this 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 change in things. And, you know, with that being said, yes, times are changing with COVID and, you know, less people are in the hospital and we have you know, different vaccines, um, but I don't think the the industry is ever going to go back to the way it was. Um, I, I know even with, with our organization, uh, we talk often, you know, do we just stay remote? You know, employees like it better. It's more efficient. And so I think some of the cyber threats that you see, that are a result of that um, are only gonna continue to open up opportunity for adversaries.
0: Yeah, another point uh, I I don't think enough people attend to is uh, exactly that. Even when our circumstances change economically, even in positive ways, there are these unintended side effects or consequences that tend to accompany them. So we talk about the employees love to be virtualized, that's great, but now we have that many more exposure points, right? when we had all together in one building using one server, one firewall to protect us all, that's great. But now, you know, like you said, you you run a cybersecurity company and yet who knows if your home network is vulnerable. Knowing that then, Brian, and knowing that this is, if not an unwinnable battle, it's it's almost Sisyphean, right? You're rolling that rock up the hell, and it keeps sliding back and it keeps sliding back. How do you do it? What, what what gets you excited about doing this work? Why do you keep at it? it?
1: It goes back to the mindset of of helping people and creating a more secure environment. And and listen, JT, if you think about security and defense in the history of that, you know, thousands of years, you're always going to have a need for security, defense, policing. You know, the the unfortunately. Uh, you know, evil within the world is, is just not going to go away. Um, and so I think that that's going to be something that, you know, for, for all of time, you're going to have to deal with one way or another. Um, what keeps me going, you know, I've always been driven by helping people. You know, I consider myself a, a patriot to, to country. And even when I left the Secret Service, that company that I went to work for, you know, was focused on finding nuclear threats and commerce And I live on the outskirts of of Washington, D.C., one of the number one terrorist targets in the world. And so, you know, me going to the business world and helping that company succeed was protecting my family, uh, was protecting the nation, was protecting everybody who lives around me, uh, and was protecting you. And, And so I think people sometimes can forget that you can still have a level of service within the commercial sector uh, in, in the work that you're doing. And so that's been important to me. Anything I've ever done uh, has always had that mindset. You know, I want to do well financially, but I want to do well while I'm doing good for others.
0: Forgive me if I wax a little poetic here, but I, I read a book years ago. It's just a, a summer beach read novel that I read uh, called The Fifth Profession by David Morrill. The opening to the book, it started with a bit of tribute that I'll never forget, they were talking about the fact that there were different people in the world. And it said, at the start, there were hunters, then farmers, then was something to be gained by barter, prostitutes, and politicians. Given some debate about precedence, those are the first four human endeavors. But as soon as something can be gained, it must also be protected. Hence the fifth, and I'll argue the most noble profession. And I know you aren't looking for, and I know you would probably be embarrassed by the applause and the recognition, but thank God for people like you, people who are willing to say to your point, to paraphrase you, it's fine to do well, but while doing some good, while keeping people safer at night, while letting companies not have to go through what your dad's company went through by making sure they stay cyber safe. So with that said, Brian, what's the plan? What are you going to do? How do you beat back the bad guys and help keep companies and countries cyber safe?
1: So I always say, uh, one day and, and one step at a time, right? <laughs> um, so, you know, I think, uh, I think there's, there's, there's several things as we look forward, uh, to, to how we shape and change and, and help. And I know, um, you know, I kind of have, have two buckets that I'm involved with, um, you know, with you relate to this. And, and one is a, a company that you and I had started called Protective AI that really focuses on you know protecting people, property, places, and profits, and looking at frontier technology, artificial intelligence, machine learning, blockchain, you know things along those lines. Um, and then you know we have our, our other company, CodeLock, uh, that was a spinoff of Protective AI that's really focused on this cybersecurity issue, data security, um, securing software, and a pivotal point for, for both of us was when that solar winds attack had happened, you know, in, in looking at why didn't we realize that the threat to the software supply chain existed and that the need to harden and secure the software development environment was, was important. And, you know, again, I, I mentioned 9-11 last time, you know, before 9-11 happened, we never thought that terrorists were going to fly an airplane into the building. And the same is true with cybersecurity, right? We, we see new attack vectors that we now need to focus on. And so, you know, what am I going to do? Um, well, I'm going to work with, with my team uh, and we're going to continue to try to uh, find ways to help and prevent and protect the customers and clients and governments and countries you know, that we're working with? How can we take the collective experiences? How can we use the, the great team that we've put together to help stop this or at least make a difference or slow the curve down to be able to, to allow others to
0: succeed? Yeah, it's a, a great point and a great vision. It's just because there are bad guys and there are lots and lots of them and there may even be more, doesn't mean we should just surrender the field. We shouldn't give up. We, we need to keep on fighting. You know, you talked about how things are progressing into the future, consistent with the theme of this show. And one of the reasons we started this show is every other podcast, interview, uh, television show, even newspapers, everything I look at always focuses on what's happened and maybe what's happening, but very few of them look forward. And, And I've done this keynote address at different conferences for years now that I call observations of a myopic futurist. And I tell folks that I speak with that, look, if anyone tells you they know what the world is going to be like for a certain 100 years from now, run. <laughs> Connecting the dots and predicting what will likely happen in a couple of days, months, a year, or even five years, that's a much more modest challenge. So that's what I'm going to ask you to do. Think for a minute and tell me what do you see as being the best case scenario and maybe the worst case scenario a year from now? Five years from now?
1: Wow, great question. And uh, so, you know, thinking one year and five years, you know, tends to be easier um, than than thinking, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now. And, and the first thing that comes to mind, and, and I won't stop here, but my wife and I built a, a new home that we're living in now, and we moved in just prior to, to COVID. And one of the things that we had thought about is how do we future-proof the home, right? How do we think about things that are going to happen, and this transition to electric vehicles and, you know, solar alternative fuels were things that I looked towards in the future as, as being definites. You know, so I invested money in making sure that each slot in the garage, you know, had the right uh, hookup for an electric vehicle and, and so on. Right. So those are sort of the easy things to, to think about and and think through as you're thinking of the future and, and tomorrow, but I use that as a sort of a tangible example that people can can grasp, and then I correlate that back to some of the things that we were talking about before on how technology is is multiplying and growing. You know, I think that the rise of self-driving cars. I think um, things along the lines of rather than um, you know calling a, a taxi or an Uber you know, having the, the drone copter, you know, picking you up or, or delivering your goods. And as you start thinking two to five years out from now and the other challenges those things can, can bring, as an entrepreneur, my mind is, is going towards, okay, well, then how do I get ahead of the curve to help stop some of the problems that potentially could occur from these new transitions yeah. uh, from the tomorrow of our future?
0: What about specific to cybersecurity? Do you you think things are going to get worse before they get better? Do you think we're on a a positive trajectory now where we're beating back the bad guys and we've learned our lessons from, you know, the SolarWinds and the Equifax hacks and these sort of things, and, and now we're on guard and we'll be protected? Do you think if we fast forward the clock, you and I have this same conversation years from now, are things better or are they worse?
1: I think the, the landscape is unfortunately going to be worse. Um, and I, you know, hope and pray and, and work towards the things that we're doing today to, to shorten that gap that we might be looking at. But JT, let's just get practical for a second. You know, let's look at what's happening in Russia and Ukraine right now. You have a massive war that's occurred. Nobody ever thought that Russia was going to invade Ukraine. Luckily the, the world and, and the, just the the bravery of Ukrainian people have pushed Russia back. But what do you think is going to happen? You know, is Russia just going to go back home and and sit there No. I mean, they're a massive cyber organized crime element. I mean, they're going to pick up the the cyber attacks. They're going to be working with their ally, China, uh, who out of anybody in the world, you know, uh, scares me the most with, with some of their technical capabilities and, and goals. Um, And so I, I think that we are, behind the curve from a cybersecurity perspective um, as far as the the world is concerned and as far as some of the the skill sets of our adversaries. And some of that is, look, we we tend as a nation to play by the rules. Unfortunately, our adversaries don't. And it's harder to sometimes protect against somebody who's not playing by the same rule book, but it's the nature of the game.
0: We have of purely defensive posture, particularly in cyber crime or cyber assaults, whether you're talking about in the private or the public sector, we tend not to be the aggressor more often than not, uh, certainly not systematically as part of policy, right? We're not going after, we're fending off the bad guys. And, and a point you've made to me when we've spoken about this before is we have to be successful every time. They only have to get lucky once the system can come crashing down. Again, look at SolarWinds, look at some of these other hacks we've seen. But what advances do you think are coming in cybersecurity, in battling cybercrime, you know, the the defense against the dark arts to go all Harry Potter on you? Uh, What do you think we're going to see over the next couple of years, Uh, next year, five years? What are we going to see?
1: We're definitely going to see just an increase in involvement with artificial intelligence and machine learning. You know, when you go back to the just the the fact that we started with that every company is now a data company, well, you know, data has, you know, there's zeros and ones that need to be tracked and looked at, right? So we're now at a point where historic uh, cybersecurity tools, where you had people and analysts looking through things, there's just too much information and they can't sift through it and work through it. So we're going to have to use machines. We're going to have to get better with our algorithms and with our tools to be able to start applying that to help solve the problem. You know, when I'm having these conversations with people, uh, there's always somebody in the crowd who asks the question, well, what about quantum computing? You know, when quantum computing happens, you know, isn't that going to just, you know, destroy everything? And, um, you know, I think uh, you were actually one of the first people who I heard turn that statement and say, well, you know, if quantum computing can... Uh, hurt things well quantum computing can also help things you know and so this rise of quantum you know both on the good and bad is going to be very interesting to see how that develops in the future and, and becomes a, a key player
0: yeah that that's the future and i think that's really where we need to set our sights you can't drive a car by looking in the rearview mirror or at least you shouldn't particularly if you want to drive in in the dc metro area but what about today? Yeah. What can people, companies, countries, what can we all start doing right now to better secure our data assets, to better protect ourselves against whether it's you know some hacker who's living in the, his mom's basement with a cat or somebody who is very sophisticated coming out of China or Russia? What do we do to protect ourselves? What do we do to fight back?
1: So the the big trend right now and and really where the heart of of my effort is, is helping to bridge the historic gap that's happened within software between developers and security. And the security industry historically has been an afterthought into looking back into data and software, right? Uh, You know, IT data software, they do their thing. And then the security group is trying to look at Well, how do we protect against that? What has to change now is security has to be a a forethought. You know, you have to be thinking about it and implementing it and working it into the build process of of whatever you're making or designing from the beginning, because that's the only way you're going to be able to stop these threats in the future. Uh, If you're looking at it from after the fact and and trying to apply something backwards, it's just not going to work. So, you know, companies, organizations, um, you know, whether they're using software or whether they're storing data or whether they're creating widgets, they need to think about how they can implement the the security design at step one instead of step 10.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's so interesting you say that. I, I've been to your new house, uh, I should tell the listeners. And while you talk about the fact that you look to future proof it and you put in, charging capabilities for electric cars and all that sort of thing, what you did differently to my eye was most people go to the architect, to the contractor, they have the home built, and then they think, well, we should put good locks on this. You built security in natively, right? When you were building the house, from the, before the first shovel hurt hit the dirt, I know you were thinking about, and how do I keep my wife and children safe, right? And you did it without making your home look like a fortress, anything but, uh, if anyone gets invited to one of Brian's shindigs, I should tell you, his house is absolutely beautiful, magnificent. And the security is is so native, is so synthetic that it's invisible, but it is built in. It is fully integrated. And what you're saying, what I'm hearing you saying is not enough, even software developers, let alone companies, are taking that same perspective. Rather than that, they're treating security as an afterthought, if any thought. And increasingly we have to bake it in uh, the same way we would, you know, I I lived in a converted Victorian mansion when I was a kid in New York for a short while. And it was built during a time when you used gas light for the house and they had to run in wiring and, and build an electric. And it was a nightmare. I mean, everything was always shorting out and it was, you know, terrible and you had to put a penny in the fuse box to make sure uh, the lights would stay on, which, by the way, anyone listening, bad idea. Don't put a penny in the future. But um, <laughs> I should tell you, that's why my hair looks the way it does. Uh, but uh, to me, reminds me of what a lot of companies are doing, and they're not going back and they're not looking at how fully in- integrated, instantiated part of the whole this needs to be. Uh, I-, I think it's a great point, Brian. And so you know, sort of closing out, I always like to ask my guests – Is there something that you'd like our listeners to know more about? Is there a company, a cause, an organization, something you'd like to promote, something you'd like to give a shout out to, something you'd like to share that you will help, that will help our listeners as they prepare for what's coming next?
1: So myself and and JT actually co-authored a book on, on cybersecurity uh, and it was titled, or is titled, Stay Cyber Safe, What Every CEO Should Know About Cybersecurity. And, and I would argue that this goes beyond CEOs, but we were, were gearing it towards, you know, that audience at the time when we wrote it. Highly recommend that your listeners uh, go on to Amazon and, and get a copy of that just to sort of understand the, the landscape of, of what we're talking about. And we wrote that in a uh, really a, a C-Dick run format, you know, and, and made it extremely, you know, simple and easy uh, for for people to follow, so that would be that would be one recommendation. Then you know, just at a higher level, I am all about you're all about you know helping others, as I, I hope you've heard you know through this conversation. And whether that's on the cybersecurity front, you know, companies who are developing software for themselves or others, uh, I would love to to have uh, one of my my team members you know talk with them and, and help them to understand how we can better secure their software and give them greater insights into what their developers are doing. But then on the, the Protected by AI side of the house, we just have a, a real unique capability to help companies understand how to use technology to, to benefit them. Um, and, and not just in the way of, of security and or protection, but we always mention this protecting profits. You know, how do we help those companies uh, make more with, with what they have? Um, and so by bringing frontier technologies like artificial intelligence, like machine learning, uh, like blockchain, uh, we're able to, to really jump in and, and, and make a difference. So uh, anybody is always welcome to, to reach out to, to me or one of our companies or one of our team members and, and happy to help show them how we can make a
0: difference. Yeah. And we'll post a few links on the website in case any of our listeners are interested in learning more about companies you lead, the products you've help develop uh, a link to the book. We're actually gonna also put your bio up on the website for, uh, believe it or not, to, uh, I'll tell you, everyone who's listening, that was just the highlights reel. Brian's full biography reads like uh, Tom Clancy meets Horatio Alger. It's this incredible story. Uh, I'm wondering who's gonna get to play him in the movie. Brian, uh, thanks so much for joining the conversation. And, And thanks to all of you for tuning in and for your commitment to creating a better tomorrow.